I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talked to the brilliant Rebecca Struthers about watchmaking. Rebecca is a watchmaker, historian and soon-to-be popular science writer based in Birmingham. And I started by asking her how she first got into watchmaking. I came about the industry in kind of a roundabout way. It was all by accident and quite serendipitous, really. So um, I was at school and um, really struggling. I actually dropped out halfway through my A-levels. So I've been the sort of person who I've always loved art and science. And um, I found, especially I went to a grammar school too, you really push down the science route and it's either you're a successful scientist or a lawyer or, or a failure of an artist. So I, I was kind of drawn between these two things, feeling I did all sciences for my A-levels, feeling that that was the thing I should do, but I just wasn't happy with it. I felt too kind of um, channeled in a way that I couldn't express my creative side, I suppose. And um I took the quite brazen decision to run away to art school at 17 um, and ended up studying jewellery and silversmithing as some from Birmingham. And there was a school down the road in the jewellery quarter from me that taught um, jewellery. And I, I thought it's quite a nice way to do something with my hands and um, design and make and um, kind of get back into that side of things that I was passionate about. But it was while I was doing that, I kind of found myself missing the structure and, and the rigidity of the, the science element of what I was doing. And um, I started to incorporate sort of basic automata and movement within my jewellery um, just to kind of bring a little bit of that back in. And it just so happened that the university I was at at that point taught horology, so the skill of watch and clock making. And their students spotted my work at a final show and said, oh, Rebecca, you should come and check out watchmaking. We think you'd enjoy this. So I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. And at that point, I'm, literally, to me, watchmaking was battery changing at Timson's. <laughs> you know, I didn't really know much more about the industry than that. But I went to the workshop and that was it 
for me, I just fell completely in love with the subjects and it just combined everything that I was passionate about. So some days you get to be an engineer, another days you're a designer, some days you're a historian, and then other days you're, yeah, doing accounts. You're <laughs> 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 running a business. But um, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And um, never look back, really. So I started training in jewellery in 2003 and then watchmaking in 2005. And that was a three-year course full-time. And then kind of left and did various other courses around work um, and ended up doing a PhD in horology. was my most recent one. Now I've got to figure out what course to take next. Cause, <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those education addicts. I feel like I need, I need to do something else now. Yeah. And what was your PhD on? Hmm. So my PhD, um, I studied um, a kind of watch forgery that appeared in the 18th century. And I got really excited about this. We didn't know anything about these forgeries at all, other than they um, bear the names of, of watchmakers, in inverted commas, that don't exist. Okay. Um, so there were these kind of made-up watches that that start appearing in huge numbers in the 18th century, mid 18th century, and um, they're called they were called Dutch forgeries at the time, and um, because they were thought to be um, or but thought to be made in Switzerland, and because um, I love a good mystery, mm-hmm. I found my first one of these watches and thought you know I have to find out who um, it was a guy called John Wilter on the watch and it just said when I looked him up in this dictionary we have a watchmaker's name it just said John Wilson perhaps a fictitious name <gasps> and I thought this sounds incredible who was this guy <laughs> and um so I started looking into it I found these Dutch forgeries and ended up um doing a, a PhD in what turned out to be the early mass production of watches and consequently the source of the democratization of time itself so that point in our history that we like, we take it for granted now, we all have phones and computers, we know the time. But you go back to 300 years ago and watches were hugely expensive things. So only the wealthiest people in society would have had access to accurate, portable time. So this kind of social, cultural change that has come about as a result of us all being able to know what the time is was huge. And the watch played a really important part of making that possible. So that was kind of how this one John Wilson, perhaps a fictitious name, kind of opened out into this huge area that yeah, I'm still researching today, to be honest. It's um, just huge. Time is huge. <laughs> <laughs> Very philosophical as well. <laughs> and um, and you're writing a popular science book now, is that right? Yes, I am. Hands of Time. Um, that's out in 2022, which feels like a very long way away. But I suspect <laughs> it will come around very quickly, as I'm sure you found too, as your book you brought out. Is it in the spring? May, yeah. Or- Cool. um, Good mutual plug there. Um, (laughs) Yes, at Hands of Time, I'm looking at the history of um, horology, of timekeeping through the stories of objects. So, seven of those will be watches. And it was uh, the story of time through seven watches, only there's a bone in there now, too. So, it's going to be the story of seven watches and a bone. I don't know quite how. Frame, frame that but uh, yeah just looking at how um, our ancestors first discovered the cyclic nature of time so obviously we think of something at time as a, a human construct but actually it's something we're working with that exists in the universe around us and that we have no control over it's just kind of how we go from that point of discovering the lunar cycle and the solar year and breaking that down to a point we come to something called clock time 
which is our kind of really strict, rigid interpretation of this natural phenomenon, um, and then living our lives by it to the degree that we do today. So that kind of process and then how the objects follow us on that journey and um, how, I suppose for me, watches are also really important. So I'm very much on a watchmaking side of things, not a clockmaking side of things, which I know can be a bit uh, confusing, I think, because people put the two things in together. But I think for me, clocks are really beautiful, really interesting things, but they're almost like bystanders in history. So they kind of they sit on a mantelpiece or on a ship or something while things are going on around them. Whereas watches are the things that we actually carry on our person. And because of that, they show so much more about who we are and how we want to be seen. And also the way they've been worn or damaged, they come with the most incredible stories um, that I kind of started to collect as a restorer as well, of, of the things that these, the, these pieces have been witnessed to. So you've got this kind of this object that is so present and so important for much of our cultural history um, is also showing us our own social development through um, being very much at the mercy of nature to the point that we are at now where um, where we're kind of trying to control time and the effects of time on our bodies ourselves, whether that be through things like plastic surgery or um, I read a report recently where they've managed to, for the first time, reverse some of the damage caused by age-related cognitive decline, so for dementia and Alzheimer's. And um, really interestingly, that report apparently is part of, um, this is new field to me, I'm very much on the technical side, but um, part of a field of research going on at the moment which describes age, age as a um, reversible disease, wow. which I just thought was incredible, the idea of age being a disease that we may one day or probably will at the rate we're going to be able to reverse. It's just this kind of, you know, this transition of our relationship with time is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about a watch saying a lot about a person. Um, I started looking at my own watch when you were talking there. Um, I've got I've got a Garmin um, like sports <laughs> watch. It's completely digital, yeah. so you'd probably hate it. Um, but what I love about it is that it tells me um, all the kind of like kind of like health metrics, like um, number of steps that you do in a day. I use it for swimming, so it tells me how many lengths I swim, and I don't have to count them. Um, it tells me how stressed I am, and draws me a little graph on my phone every day. <laughs> What, wow. <laughs> what, yeah. what's your opinion on that on those kinds of watches you know how how we use them today oh uh, well to be fair I'm a massive Casio fan so I've got <laughs> um G-Shocks and like classic 80s stuff great so I have a huge range of different watches myself I love first watches too up to kind of the rarer older stuff so I'm not a watch snob at all um, I think that's part of the joy of them these days as well, that they are so accessible means we can have more fun with them. Um, but yeah, in terms of what they can do now with smartwatches, I haven't got a smartwatch. I don't even have like an Alexa or a Google Chrome um, sort of thing around the house. And I think it's not to do with the time element. I think it's more to do with they feel quite invasive. Mm. I think I think being told how stressed out I am throughout the day would make me even more stressed. <laughs> Just the constant calm down, calm down. There's nothing that stresses me out more than being told to calm down. Um, yeah, so I think that's quite interesting, and quite interesting as well that watches went from being 
especially clocks when we first um, started developing kind of the grand idea of your architectural clocks. So whether that be the famous clock in Prague or um, many public clocks sort of five, six, seven hundred years ago could tell you a huge amount of information um, from astrological phenomenon, um, star constellations and um, as well as lunar cycles and stuff so it's almost like we've gone back slightly from a watch just telling the time from all this kind of history if they could tell us so much more to again a watch that can tell us huge amounts of information beyond just what time is the time's almost irrelevant because you've still got your phone for the time it's everything else that makes it useful so yeah it kind of goes around in circles and Maybe the other element of it that I find interesting too is it, it's back to being a luxury almost. So you went from watches being super expensive to watches being accessible to now we just don't need them anymore. Mm. So again, they, they've gone back almost to what they were at the beginning of being an affordable now, but still an unnecessary luxury to mm. the point that now, I mean, I imagine you got your watch probably more for what it could do than because it could tell you the time. Is that right? Yeah, um, pretty much. Although I do enjoy <laughs> I do enjoy the fact that it can tell me the time purely because then it means that I don't look at my phone for the time and then get yeah. lost down a hole of social media and emails and stuff. <laughs> like yeah. my, my watch does have the capability of telling me my emails and my notifications and stuff, but I, I've completely switched that capability off because I do not want to be followed around by that stuff. Yeah, it's very easy to let these things kind of invade your life, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Because if you're not so true yeah Yeah. um anyway let's talk about the making itself um and first of all really interested to know what materials you work with in watchmaking yes I was thinking about this based on your kind of previous podcast there's one in particular that really stands out to me and um there's just so many that are so beautiful for all their different properties. Um, traditionally in watchmaking, a lot of it is around brass and steel. Um, brass for the plates and for wheels and steel for the harder wearing surfaces like pinions and pivots. Um, but we also use something called German silver for our plates. And that's a kind of a, a nickel alloy. It's not actually um, precious metal silver at all as I'm aware you know <laughs> but um yeah I just it's got a really beautiful property it was used it's called German silver so it was quite commonly used in Germany um in watches at kind of turn of the 20th century um and slightly before but it ages beautifully it kind of develops this almost greeny hue to it that we just love and it's used by some quite high-end um, German watch companies so we're using it for plates that we're making at the moment um, so that's one that I love in terms of case making um, we work with precious metals um, which was something I kind of I learned from my first tutor at uni actually for goldsmithing was a brilliant goldsmith he actually retired the year I finished the course and he'd started his apprenticeship when he was 13 wow. um, and he was Austrian so he moved over to the UK and was just this incredible goldsmith but he could make little birds or bees out of gold and, and stone set that looked real they, they were just incredible and um, I remember I designed this piece of jewellery and um, I was about to start making it in gilding metal so base metal and he saw what I was doing and stopped me and, and asked why and um, I said well I can't I can't afford to get precious metal I was only a student at the time and he said 
uh, he said, Rebecca, it's beautiful design. You put a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of work to make this. You should work in metals that are worthy of your design and effort. And he sorted me out with some precious metal to make it from. Sorry. And um, yeah, that really stuck with me that kind of you're putting all this effort into doing something, your material should be worthy of your effort. And uh, that's something I've carried with me now throughout my career. And it's why in watchmaking now we only work in precious metal. Um, gold's lovely, but I must admit I have a real soft spot for silver. Um, so it's a beautiful material to work with. Again, very soft, very malleable, ages beautifully, um, incredibly tactile. And... Um, yeah, it's a really lovely metal to be able to work with your hands through annealing processes and hammering, and it's very hands-on. Um, so now, these days, the majority of modern watch cases are made through CNC, Computer Numeric Control. So you literally you design it in a computer, put the computer program into um, this big kind of CNC machine, and you've got mills and drills just cut out the whole case for you. And I think for about 250000 300000 you can get a machine where you literally plot put a block of metal in the one end and the perfectly finished case comes out the other. And um, so, we, you know, we could do that, but I just think it'd be really boring. <laughs> uh, it, it made life a lot easier, but I think as a hands-on maker, I just, I can't, I wouldn't get the passion from that. So there's something about taking like strips and bars of metal and just heating them and forming them and soldering them and putting them in a lathe and turning them back until they all fit together. That is just incredibly satisfying. So on case making terms, probably my favourite is silver to work with. But then we have really other kind of interesting materials that have been introduced to improve the watchmaking process throughout the years. Um, there's things like corundum, um, another one of my favourites, because they're just beautiful. So we use synthetic rubies predominantly now in watches, but we also use sapphires too. Um, initially, they used to be natural, but um, obviously natural stones well when they're perfect they're incredibly expensive um and they have to be perfect for watchmaking so if there's any imperfections they can cause wear on the pivots so we use them to um for them being incredibly hard wearing um and better bearing surfaces than if we just had a steel pivot turning in a piece of brass or german silver but um so yeah we developed um firstly it was an english invention too because the english used to be really good watchmakers once upon a time before the swiss industry took over um starting off with natural and now synthetic jewels and we still use synthetic jewels in this in watchmaking today and any surface that needs to be incredibly hard um and they're just beautiful again it's another little color contrast and we have i have pots of hundreds of them um that I keep thinking I need to make something out of them because they're so pretty. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's really interesting the, the way the kind of materials work together to be something that's both incredibly functional and yet incredibly beautiful. So we do things like bluing steel as well for screws. If you heat treat um, steel, it turns blue, um, amongst other colours. And we kind of go for a purpley blue. Um, so it changes colour. As you heat it, it goes through kind of a yellowy strawy colour and then into a deeper kind of brown, then into a purple, then blue, a deep kind of um, almost like midnight blue. And then that fades through to a, a kind of an electric blue and then into grey and then back to steel again. So in watchmaking, we usually stick around the purpley blue area. But again, it, I mean, we have to do it to temper it. So to take the, the super hardness off the screw so it doesn't break off in the plate. But... Um, you don't have to leave it blue and you don't have to get it perfect either and it still work, but we do it for purely aesthetic reasons. 
So again, it's this kind of contrast between something that is both incredibly functional and yet incredibly beautiful. And I think that's one of the appeals to me. So I've listed I've heard a few materials. There's so many materials that you can go through. And there's so much more coming into the industry now um, as obviously our understanding of what can be used advances. So there's um, like self-lubricating metals and stuff like that. It's, yeah, Formula One type stuff that gets used in watchmaking now, which again is kind of outside of my remit generally. We do deal with a bit of it, but you, know, you get watches made from carbon fibre cases and you can actually get entire watch plates now made out of sapphire, synthetic sapphire, wow. which so you can see through them completely. Um, it's amazing, really. Yeah, I'll sit with my weird old machines and um, handmade <laughs> But so it's very impressive what can be done now. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So what then is the process of making a watch from start to finish? I imagine there's hundreds and hundreds that you have to do, but I guess like, yeah, maybe like a summary of how to make a watch would be great. Yeah, I mean, we're quite unusual in the way that we make things because we are so traditional. So um, the equipment that we use to make, we're making our first complete watch ourselves at the moment. And um, the equipment we're using is kind of up sort of 120 years old is the oldest wow. piece up sort of 50 years old for our lathes and our milling machines and um generally speaking we kind of collect them as boxes of bits off someone's garden shed floor that we found on ebay <laughs> that kind of thing and we bring them back and rebuild them and put them together and, and turn them into machines that can create parts for watches um, and they all have names too um they're kind of part of our family but um, yeah, so we're really old school. Our first watch would be making by reverse engineering an existing caliber that um, was made in around 1880. So it was a, an English made, but machine English made caliber towards the end of the British industry before the Swiss really took over. And we decided that'd be a good place. Not only is it one of our favorite eras of watchmaking, but because it's the end of the British industry, for us to kind of step in and almost pick up where we left off and continue using kind of 
I would say more modern equipment. It's probably only about 50 years after <laughs> those first movements were made. Um, and uh, yeah, add a bit more to it. So that's how we started out and um, kind of start out by uh, reverse engineering the main plates, which is everything um, that the, the train itself and the escapement sits in between. Um, then you have to make all of the wheels. Um, you can get automatic indexing heads now, which um, you basically put your little, your circle of metal, your flat disc of metal into the lathe and it will run a cutter three for each tooth for you. Mm um because we're really old school i've got a manual indexing head and i actually I find it really therapeutic um so you put your disc in and you have um kind of a cross slide with a, an arm on it and you have to manually push the cutter through um the the wheel as it will be and back again and then you manually index it around one more and push it backwards and forwards and you cut each tooth at a time and wheels can have anywhere from sort of 30 40 teeth up to 60 70 so you're doing that each time for each watch and we're making five movements. So it's a lot of them. It's really rhythmic mm. <laughs> and it sounds great as well. It's a lovely sounding um, piece of equipment. She's called Helga, our gear cousin. Um, so we do that. The same sort of thing goes for pinions as well, but steel so much harder. So you've got hardening and tempering processes and finishing. Um, every We call them leaves on pinions. Um, so that's every tooth is called the leaf and you have to polish in between each of those leaves. Wow. There's quite a time, time um, consuming process. Yeah. Um, and fit them all together. Uh, you've got things like your keyless work, which is the component of the watch that needs to, or it works by moving the, um, the crown, your winding button in between the handset position and the winding. So um, that little, that process between when you wind the watch and you pull it out and you set the hands, that's another mechanism in itself. Um, and then obviously you've got um, parts like the external parts of so the dial is something we've been working on. Um, we've been working in enamel, which is enamel watch dials used to be made in their tens of thousands in the UK, but it's another kind of heritage skill that we've really lost over the last century. And there's actually um, a company in Glasgow um, who've just started up a brand who kind of their focus is around making watch dials, enamel watch dials. So we've spoken to them. We work with Deacon and Francis, who um, they're our landlords here at our workshop in Birmingham. And they've been here since 1786. Wow. Uh, in, on this site, in this building, they actually bought, or their ancestors bought the um, site off James Watt, the um, industrialist. No yeah, really, really cool, cool place to be. Yeah. And in their basement, they've got all the dyes and everything that they've been using for hundreds of years and drop stamps and flies, presses. It's like going back in time. Yeah, so, but they've been enamelling here for over 200 years now. So we've kind of been networking with some of our local makers to, to kind of bring those skills back and, um, yeah, reintroduce some traditional enamel dial making. Case making as well, we do here on site. We've got um, a larger lathe, a 10 millimetre lathe uh, called Barney. Um, so we use him for boxwood turning, which is you, you, you literally use a trunk of wood um, to turn the kind of recesses into, say, the bezel of a watch that you can push it onto. And wood's nicer to use in that context because it's easier to get the metal off without damaging it. So if you used um, a lump of brass for your jig and then glued it on while you turned it to get that off, you need to heat it, which is going to change 
the color of the metal or if you try and lever it off you might end up damaging the bezel whereas wood you literally just kind of lick a flame over it and the whole thing just pops off because of the kind of temperature changes so that's a nice excuse um barney is named barney after a dog actually um because he we found him again ebay purchase other auction sites are available um we found we found we were looking for a case making lathe and um we found this one and the guy's ebay handle was barney the whippet and we got really excited because craig and i are like massive dog lovers and uh, we got so excited going to pick up this lathe thinking oh we're gonna meet barney with it and when we got there we're like oh nice lathe uh, do you have a dog <laughs> and so um, and it turned out that Barney had actually passed away shortly beforehand. Aww. So that was a point we decided we were going to name the lathe in Barney's memory and immortalise him in our workshop. So that's, yeah, that's how we make our cases. Um, but there's just so many details to, to it. So we've got, we're just sorting out crystals at the moment and they're made from sapphire too. So that's kind of a, a partly out, external case because it's just so hard wearing. Um, even things like watch straps there's so many different levels to it we don't make our own um, leather straps but you get kind of specialist leather workers doing stuff like that now um, designing buckles actually designing our watch buckle it sounds ridiculous it's such a small part of a watch but um, getting that right because not only is it something aesthetic but it's got to be um, wearable and incredibly comfortable yeah. and tactile so trying to get that process right so the strap sits properly through it and it sits against your wrist in a really ergonomic way um yeah it's just so many details and we're kind of we're coming to the end of these first builds and um so i'll be in a better position probably in a few months to go through like the exact processes that was kind of finishing to the final thing mm. it, it's gonna be weird i think when we finally hand them over it's kind of like a kid going off to uni this has been <laughs> our, our life for years is it gonna behave is it going to have a breakdown? Is it going to like, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's good fun. Yeah, really cool. So how do you calibrate your mechanics to make exactly one second tick by? So the um, kind of process of getting the hands to go around yeah. um, once an hour, I suppose, and then, uh, well, minute hand once an hour and the hour hand once every 12 hours is all through gearing um but then the speed that that is allowed to happen is all through the the speed of the escapement right. and that's regulated by on top of the balance we have something called a hairspring um they're originally called hairsprings because they were made of literal hairs literal oh, wow. um but steel springs were invented and introduced in watches in 1675 mm-hmm. um and that massively improved timekeeping. So it's like a steel spiral, really tightly coiled spiral. Um, actually, they can be made out of silicon now. Um, there's all different, again, because it's such an important, precise part of the watch. There's been a lot of investment in improving mm. our technology and, and understanding the materials in um, hair springs. But this spring, literally, we call it breathing. And as the balance oscillates backwards and forwards, it kind of overcoils and then undercoils this spring. So it breathes in and out. And um, that's the length of that spring, the active length of that spring is what controls the speed of the oscillation. 
So in most watches, we have something called an index, which has a pair of curved pins that kind of straddle that the outer corner of that spring, and you can turn the index back and forth to either increase or decrease the active length of the spring. And the longer the spring is, the slower it runs, and the shorter the spring is, the faster it runs. So that's very basically how you can do it. Um, but you can also regulate it using weights on the balance. So the heavier it is, you can slow it down, mm. the lighter it speeds up. Um, so there's a few different ways to do it, but it's all about that kind of spring balance weight ratio. Yeah. Oh, so intricate. <laughs> kind of a miracle of engineering when you when you really think about actually how how it works. Yeah. I, the miracle for me is that these things were invented so long ago. Yeah. Uh, they didn't even have electric light. They didn't have electric motors. They didn't have um, magnification. They used to use a bulb of glass filled with water to magnify things. You know, and it's just incredible that this these things were invented before we'd even harnessed electricity. It's yeah, mind blowing. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's such a, a making practice with such a long history. Um, you mm. mentioned some kind of new materials that are coming into the industry. I'm interested yeah. in where you see it moving forward. I suppose because you work in quite a traditional way of working um what's the future of watchmaking looking like i think the future of watchmaking it's almost i feel like and i could be proved wrong here i'm, I'm not very good at predicting the future otherwise I'd, i'll probably be a very rich woman now but um if, if i could put my finger on anything i'd say it's almost like forking off in two different directions so you've got a renewed interest in kind of the independent traditional artisan making um, but also you've got like the super high-end technology watches and it's almost like it's becoming an either-or type thing. Um, and looking at what's going on now, particularly in Switzerland with the high-end um, side of the precision watchmaking is just incredible. I mean, these watches are kind of precision scientific um, objects first before timekeepers. I mean, some of them it's actually quite hard to read the time from. <laughs> Just incredible works of engineering. And um, yeah, and just things like super slim movements as well. So there are watches that are made kind of like millimeter thick movement with um, all the components operating within. That's just incredibly impressive. Mm -hmm. And then um, kind of your gravity resonance movements as well. So you've got balances acting against each other or together to create um, more accurate movements spherical tourbillons and things and just super levels of complications um, going on in watches so I think it's kind of going to keep probably that will continue in that direction but I think there'll always be kind of that um, element of watchmakers just doing things the old school way and there's certainly um, still a big demand for that so I think it's kind of it's probably going to polarize more mm. I think whether that will come back together at some point I don't know but um yeah, it's an interesting time. Mm. I think it's interesting to see where it's going to go and where it's going to go next as well. Um, as I mentioned, it was England was the centre of the world watch industry, then Switzerland. Before England, it was Germany. Um, and now the Swiss industry is um, struggling with competition from the Far East. So it could be that the centre of watchmaking moves again in the world in the next sort of 50 years or so. So yeah interesting times <laughs> yeah for sure I think I suppose like I was saying about my watch one of the 
best things that I like about it is the fact that it tells me the time and it doesn't distract me by all of the other things that can distract us in modern life. Um, so it seems to me that there is like totally going to continue to be a market for um, sim simple timekeeping again, you know, stuff that isn't going to distract us and like pull us down a social media hole or an email hole, just back, back to the simple yeah. act of wanting to know what the time is. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's something, um, our first watch that we're designing is um, hour and minute only as well. It doesn't mm. have a second hand. And there is something really peaceful about a dial that doesn't have anything moving quickly on it, I yeah. think, especially because of the psychology of time and it running away with us. Mm. That to have something that's so slow is, um, yeah, it's a really lovely thing. Um, and, a, yeah, there's a big market. We were speaking to... Um, a watch dealer in the US for a bit of advice on what we should do with our next watches. I think you should, you know, should we introduce complication or something to make it bigger? And he was like, no, at the moment, people love simple watches. It's all about, yeah, that kind of back to basics approach, just something really beautifully made, but really kind of taking you back to where it all started sort of a thing. So that's, yeah, it's definitely kind of in there as a kind of a trend at the moment. And I hope it stays in fact in a way it should stay because it's always been there um and we had a quartz crisis obviously with the introduction of battery watches back in the 60s and 70s but the mechanical industry now for watches is stronger than it's been in a very long time so um yeah i, th I feel like it will always be there um it's just what form i suppose it will eventually come in as time and technology changes yeah um, I noticed that you are not wearing a watch this morning as we're talking. <laughs> but <laughs> if <laughs> do do you have a favourite watch? And if so, what does it say about you? Oh, um, I do love my Casios, mm -hmm. and they're usually my workshop watches because it doesn't matter if I bash them about. Um, and I am quite clumsy when I'm at work, especially with tools and machines and stuff going on. Um, so they are, yeah, favorite call them scratch watches. Um, I must admit, I did a really like corny loser thing when I first got a decent pay packet of getting a program. It's a vintage one. It's an Air King, vintage Air King. Um, and that's kind of my, that's my only dress watch. <laughs> really nice. So I treasure that. Um, but then I've got loads of weird vintage stuff that I've just picked up over the years that doesn't even have a name to it, but um, it's really cool designs. There used, to, there used to be literally thousands of different watch companies doing stuff or, or no-name stuff that would be retailed by other people um, back in sort of 1920s, 30s and 40s. So I've got quite a few pieces from that that I just really like the dial or the case or there's something really about them that, that captured me. Um, I just could have serviced them all. That's the only problem. Like Watchmakers are like builders. The, a builder's house is never done. A watchmaker's watches are never serviced. We start off with good intentions, but we get bogged down doing stuff for, you know, making money. Yeah. <laughs> one day, one day I'll get around to servicing my own watch collection. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So if people have been interested hearing about um, sort of clocks and watches and horology, um, is there anywhere that they can go either online or in real life in the future um, to kind of go and see some of these um, mechanical pieces? 
we'll find out um, more. Yeah, we've got a few places, a few places in the UK. Um, I mean, if you're London-based, there's a wonderful collection at the British Museum. Um, they have a gallery of clocks and watches, but also um, you can get behind the scenes as well. If you contact the curators, they have, I think, four and a half thousand watches. Wow. Um, away in the basement. Um, so that's a beautiful place to go. You've got the Clockmakers Company collection is at the Science Museum in London now. Um, the V&A has a beautiful collection of decorative watches, if you like kind of the diamonds and enamels and, and stone set side of things. Um, up in Newark, there's the Museum of Timekeeping, which is um, kind of home of the British Horological Institute too. Um, and they run courses as well. So if anyone fancies doing, probably not during COVID, but um, if anyone fancies doing kind of like a weekend course in watchmaking to just experience a little bit of what that's about, um, you can do that up in uh, in Newark. Um, I'm trying to think where else there is. Um, Oxford, the Ashmolean as well, has um, a lovely collection of early form watches. So that's kind of the three, four hundred year old pieces. Um, yeah, but they, they tend to find their way into museum collections everywhere. Um, when you start looking out for them, it's amazing how many places they just turn up. But those are probably the big ones in the UK. Brilliant. Um, and yeah, the Museum of Timekeeping has a wonderful library too. So. Cool. Have you ever been to the Museum of Arts and Measurements in Paris? No, I haven't. No. That's no. really good. And they've got loads of loads of this kind of mechanical stuff. And I remember going there. I was at a conference in Paris, and I just skived off the afternoon and went to this amazing museum, and. Um, yeah, they've got these amazing gears that are not, they're not circular. They're in like all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes and like just very kind of simple conjoining shapes, creating this amazing sort of like lurching movement. Yeah, really, really cool. Recommend that one next time we're able to travel. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I'll have to go. I'll have to go. Um, Paris is a home to one of my favourite watchmakers, Breguet, too. Oh, nice. So that was 200 years ago. So, but um, yeah, it's a wonderful place for watchmaking and jewellery and artisan work. And yeah, yeah, cool. definitely check that out. Um, <laughs> and if people have enjoyed hearing from you, where can they check out your stuff online? Um, I'm on Instagram um as Rebecca Struthers and I don't do as much on Twitter as I should do but we have a website <laughs> as well so you can check it out online and um yeah any questions give me a shout as well I love getting people into watchmaking so <laughs> yeah marvelous well thank you so much for chatting to me it's been so eye-opening to hear about all the materials and processes involved in watchmaking um and yeah I don't think I'm ever gonna look at my watch quite in the same way again <laughs> Oh, I just need to start collecting them now. I'll get a few. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So that was the fabulous Rebecca Struthers. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to come and talk to me on the pod. As always, you can say hi to us on Twitter at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and follow us on Insta at Handmade Pod. Thanks as always to Dave Shepherd for our brilliant cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. That's everything for this time. Next week, I'll be sharing an interview with Canadian artist and designer Omar Arbel talking about his work in glass and copper. So until then, take very good care and I'll speak to you next time on Handmade. Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.